Welcome to the CodeCast Podcast. Real-world insights for your daily medical coding and billing processes. And now, here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CodeCast Podcast. Today, my name is Terry Fletcher. I hope everyone is starting off their April well and did the same thing I did and not looked at any social media on April 1st. There's nothing worse than all the April Fool jokes. It was driving me crazy. But anyway, we are here in April now. We finished our first quarter and there's a lot to talk about. Uh, This is the 233rd episode of the CodeCast podcast. We have over 310,000 listeners and downloads. Thank you so much for continuing to stay with me. I really appreciate that. And today, my topic is really a mixed bag. I want to go back to some of the regulatory information that's come up in the last couple weeks. Yes, it's on telehealth, but I think some of it will make you happy and some of it will be like, okay, I need to keep an eye on this. We will have some coding mixed in. I want to talk to you about some of the interesting questions I've gotten lately. And then also I want to talk to you about the appeals process. I also talk about this on one of the episodes that I do for the compliance guy, Sean Weiss, but I wanted to take it a step further that some advice I've gotten from some of the payers and just some of the things that we've talked about when it comes to collections and appeals. And because I'm doing a couple of cardiology uh, two-day programs coming up, and I know for Uh, On Zark, I'm also, for Jennifer McNamara and her group, I'm doing a a cardiology summit. I'm going to be talking about collections and appeals. And I also do that for gastro and for ortho and for different specialties as well, really focusing on your procedures. So I just want to give you maybe some facts. I call them the fact five on collections and appeals, and hopefully you'll appreciate some of that information. But first, I want to talk about what's going on with telehealth and what you can expect, because as you know, it is... April 5th and then Terry Tuesday. And of course, we are looking at a potential uh, non-extension because it's going, it's scheduled to expire the public health emergency uh, next Thursday, which is the 14th. But usually what happens is at the last minute, we're getting, we've had eight extensions so far. And because I'm seeing that new B2, you know, variant, whatever from Amicron, I have a feeling they're going to extend it further, but not just because of that. Um, Because in my opinion, the pandemic is not still here. We have an endemic, but who knows everybody's definition of a pandemic. I think they're stretching that rule a bit, which kind of bugs me, but I, I see what they're going for with this. So here's the thing. So Congress came out with a Consolidation Appropriations Act that they passed, and they extended what we have in place under the flexibilities for telehealth 151 days, so that's about five months, after the public health emergency ends. Okay, so this extension was needed because they needed to match up with the temporary increase in Medicaid reimbursement for U.S. territories. And so that's why they they had to make some, some allowances, let's say, to be able to balance that money going out. So because of that, and again, we had a lot of loosened telehealth rules, as you know, we call them flexibilities, under the waiver 1135 during the pandemic, um, what I'm assuming they're going to do is med MedPAC has been asked, and that is the the committee that decides if something is cost effective or cost appropriate 
or is it appropriate even? Again, they only look at money and it's the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission. They look to see if a doctor should get a raise, if a program should be extended, if drug prices should come down. They look at all of that. And I don't always agree with their opinion. They said doctors shouldn't get, you know, a raise for 2022, which I think is wrong, but the, you know, Medicare listens to them. Also Congress listens to them. So Congress put in a requirement when they did this 151 day extension and basically said they're requiring MedPAC, so Medicare Payment Advisory Commission and the OIG, which is Office of Inspector General at the Department of HHS. They want them to report on how well the telehealth flexibilities are working and there, and are there um, safeguards in place enough where we're not seeing as much fraud, which when they find out what's going on, I think it's going to be tough. But those reports aren't due until June 2023. So I don't believe that Congress will make any permanent changes without a real analysis by MedPAC and OIG. So my expectation is that they'll do another extension, which if they do another extension, that would take us into July. So April, May, June, July, because they can only extend 90 days at a time. And then if you add five months onto that or 151 days, you're in mid-December. And then I'm thinking because of those reports in June, I wouldn't be surprised if they extended it even two more times after that to get us to that when those reports are due. But I could be wrong. They may just do it to the end of the year, but this is just what I'm foreseeing. And then once those reports come out, a more peer-reviewed analysis comes out of what happened during the pandemic, and then people lobby on permanent changes. So what's been in place and what continues to be in place obviously are fewer restrictions on where telehealth could be provided. So now the patient can be in their home and they can basically receive um, office visit care or different kinds of care uh, through a telehealth platform as long as it is an approved provider on the other end. And also Medicare also added providers like speech therapists, occupational therapists, physical therapists, which I'm always whining about. I just think that needs to end. Physical therapy over telehealth has been just to me failing badly. It's not doing well at all. And speech therapy, try kids trying to talk to somebody. They're having enough time with the mask, trying to do it through um, a Zoom platform or a video platform. That's really tough. I think certain providers need to not do that. Um, But we'll see what happens with that. Also, the Drug Enforcement Administration loosened loosened their restrictions on medication prescribing via telehealth, including requiring an in-person visit prior to describing controlled substances. I think that's going to present a problem. You know, that was a change that affected mostly behavioral health patients. But I did see some scripts, gosh, I'm tongue-tied today, did see some scripts being um, sent for patients that it probably should have warranted a a face-to-face. So we'll see what they do there. And of course, bottom line, Medicare allowed audio only telehealth under telephone calls. And so this is what they're going to be looking at when um, they decide, you know, what, what is going to be the offering for telehealth. But Medicare is really proactive on this. What has happened on the commercial side, so it's not just about Medicare, you know, the commercial side before they were mandated to do so, they offered also discounted telehealth services. Um, they also uh, added some discounted services to patients that had health savings accounts and things like that. 
And I know even on my policy, I don't have a deductible or copay if I go through telehealth. It's like, we don't want to see you, so we'll pay you not to come in. It really kind of bothers me a little bit. But another issue for telehealth providers related to state licensure. So before telehealth, and some people say, oh, it's become popular. No, it was mandated and it was a lifeline. We had a pivot to that. It wasn't an option. So it's not that it became popular. It became convenient and appropriate at the time, but we have to decide is this correct for every single situation and it's not but before telehealth became mandated or became more um, utilized it wasn't a problem if state required uh, physicians to be licensed in the state where they treated patients because all of those patients were visiting physicians in person but during the pandemic all of a sudden that became a new issue for patients and a lot of those physicians of course weren't licensed in other states But to accommodate telehealth, almost all states in the U.S. made a temporary change at the start of the pandemic, saying patients in our state can be cared for by a physician in another state. Medicare did it as well. And so early on in the pandemic, Americans, you know, and patients from all over the country started having telemedicine visits with physicians in other states. Now, what did become a problem is physicians didn't read the entire rule or the Social Security Act because some physicians, especially at the beginning of the pandemic where they had to shut down their office, if they were from another country, they left the country and then tried to see patients via telehealth out of country. And Medicare does not reimburse for any kind of services that are performed out of country. So I know a lot of these third-party um, chronic care management and any care management companies are getting in a ton of trouble because they're not just closing that they're in India or Afghanistan or Pakistan or another place that's not the U.S. So please don't do, go fall into that trap. But in the spring and summer of last year, those temporary expansions, because those are run by the state, they started to lapse. So there, I know there was a lot of frustration because everyone just thought because Medicare said it was fine that every said every state said it was fine. But no, that isn't the case. Now, could a patient, kind of awkwardly, could they go to a rest area, cross over and pull into another state and have a visit? Well, that's a stretch, but I know some did, and now that's being called into question too. So there's a lot of issues when it comes to crossing state lines. Uh, You know, if you have a a state license, let's say I'm in California and you want to see a patient that's in Arizona, but you don't, you're not um, licensed there right now. You can't. So that lapsed in, in that state. So that's something that also is being looked at. I know that uh, there's some congressional members that are looking at a possible interstate medical licensure and it's already on the books in some states. And that makes it easier for a physician in one state with the compact to get a license in another compact state. But at the federal level, level or at least the Medicare-Medicaid program, they want them to automatically mandate automatic reciprocity, reciprocity um, among states. And I don't see that's going to happen. That's not going to be a, a, a single national medical license or that kind of thing, only because there's some physicians that have um, bad actors, not all physicians, of course, but there are some physicians who've had issues in one state, moved to another state, and they were actually able to get licensure there. And then they try to see patients that they used to have. So there's a lot of um, malpractice issues, a lot of liability issues. And we'll see what happens with congressional legislations on that interstate compact situation. Because that's that's an infrastructure that has to be set up. That would take months and possibly years to do. And it would have to be voluntary for states. So HHS can't really... um, 
mandate that. They have to also have states that say that's fine. But I could see that being introduced in the Senate in the coming months. The other thing, and this is the one thing that nobody seems to be talking about. So everybody, I know there's a lot of people that think I'm a, you know, a person that goes against telehealth. I'm not. I feel like I'm kind of like the telehealth guru. You want to know how to, um, you know, build and code for telehealth, you contact me. I can not only help you set it up in your office, but, you know, I can tell you pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, what's going to happen during the pandemic and keep you absolutely 100% compliant. And I keep a grid for all of the uh, commercial plans that I could possibly come in contact with. And so not just Medicare, but I've got probably 40 insurance companies and I keep up on every single thing they're doing. But here's the thing. And so I think it's a great thing. I just don't think it's it's a replacement. And that's where my position is. I think it's a great added benefit, but not a replacement for in-person care. But the pandemic also highlighted um, some health equity issues related to telehealth. And that is the huge issue with broadband infrastructure in this country. So not all patients have affordable internet. And that is a very strong situation that needs to be addressed, funded, and make sure that we're not just offering telehealth to people who can access it. We're offering it to everybody who can access it. And so that's where I'd like to see that go. But just be aware that right now, and that was the whole point of bringing up telehealth, right now we have an extension of the public health emergency until the 14th and then 151 days after that. I do anticipate, you can always check it for yourself at phe.gov, that they're going to probably, I would think around the 13th, they always do it last minute, they're probably going to extend it another 90 days and then we would be looking at that 151 days after that expired. So let's see what happens, but make sure you're taking a look at that. Okay, so now I wanted to talk to you. I'm actually going to tell you my coding question. This is kind of a coding question, but I thought it was weird. <laughs> I got it. And I hate to say that because I'm an educator and I always want you to ask a question. I never want you to say, well, I can't ask that question because I'm intimidated to ask it or whatever. But here's the question I was asked. Actually, had a doctor call me and ask if he could, <laughs> Can <laughs> before he built an office visit, he asked if he could document his office visits prior to the patients coming in. Okay, so just just let that sit there for a minute. You saw it. I did like a two second, you know, not saying anything. I'm like, wait, what? Prior to your patients coming in. I said, so how do you know what to document? And he was like, oh, I, you know, patients are pretty routine. I can just fill it all in. And then if I have to change anything, I can change it. I'm like, no, 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 no. So in case you're wondering about that, no, you cannot pre-document or pre-populate fields because that's called cloned noting. It means you're just pulling things through and you're not updating and it's not in real time. So even though that was kind of a coding question, how to bill out an office visit and document it, It's just something that actually made my head spin around. So let's talk about appeals. So appealing claims. Sometimes I think I I walk into some revenue cycle management situations or some collection and appeal offices, and I talk to the billing staff or the collection staff, and they just sometimes feel like the the exercise of appeals is just fruitless. They feel like they're not getting anywhere. And, you know, we have some of these conversations and I kind of feel bad sometimes. So let's talk about how to boost your success rate significantly. And here's some fact fives that you can do that'll really help you in figuring out 
how to successfully appeal a claim. So fact one, check a few details before you submit the claim. And I know that this may seem very elementary or, you know, pedestrian, but emergency department codes and their encoders are usually very diligent about knowing which ICD-10 codes to submit to payers. You know, sometimes important diagnosis coding details can slip through the cracks, leading to denials, and that requires you to appeal. Same thing in specialty practices. So if you'd like to reduce the number of claims that are on your appeal list, taking this step, among several others, can help tremendously. So prior to submitting a claim for a service that has, and here's what you're looking for, a utilization or frequency limit, Review previous claim submissions and dates and refer to the applicable LCD, which is a local coverage determination, or NCD policy, national coverage determination, uh, because this is also what rack audits look uh, look for when they come at, at you. In addition, check for the National Correct Coding Initiative. The NCCI edits, those are medically unlikely edits as well. You can look at, so how many can you have in a given day? and whether the patient is in a global period of surgery. And now you'll know if you have an appropriate diagnosis code on the claim. But you can often avoid having to submit an appeal if you make sure that the required diagnosis codes are present on your claim submitted and that they're linking correctly because some services must be billed with both a primary and secondary diagnosis to be covered by Medicare. So it's important that you look to see if the secondary diagnosis is also included on the claim. I know I just did a big overhaul for a practice and we looked at 500 claims and 10% didn't have that secondary diagnosis necessary to get the claim paid. So it's really important to look at not only at the policies, but before it goes out, check everything you need because frequency guidelines and diagnoses is huge. Fact two, check whether Medicare is primary. Some denials are due to Medicare secondary payer issues. So always check to make sure whether Medicare is primary before you submit the claim. Does the patient work? That's probably an indication that you may have a different primary payer. But there are some uh, provisions that prevent Medicare from paying for items and services when other health insurance coverage is primary. And so that Medicare is secondary and the primary payer has to pay first. And so before submitting a claim, verify whether Medicare is the primary or secondary insurance for the payer. That way you'll know who should pay first and second. And then fact three, and this may seem like, oh, I didn't even, I guess I didn't even think about that. Know why you're appealing. So don't allow yourself to have a knee-jerk reaction to any denial in which you send off an appeal asking the payer to reconsider payment before really scrutinizing the reason for the denial. Take a methodical approach. So once you understand exactly why your claim was denied and have a list in front of you of those denial codes, now you know why you're appealing. So read the remittance advice before you submit an appeal. Make sure that you know why the claim was denied before submitting an appeal because it's difficult to provide a favorable appeal if decisions when the provider thinks they're appealing a duplicate denial when the service was actually denied due to excessive frequency. So documentation, um, the documentation you submit needs to address the reason that the service was denied. I see this a lot in diagnostics. So for example, an echo, okay? So let's say that you're doing echocardiography. So let's say that um, those are paid every six months for particular diagnoses. 
Um, screening colonoscopies. If you fail to get a waiver on a patient, if you're a gastro practice, um, then the patient may not have to pay and they may have had one already in the last 24 months, which is a Medicare frequency rule. So you have to know, you know, medically unlikely edits. I saw recently, because I do a lot of derm, I saw a wound care and a laceration repair, and they tried to code for 45 units in one day. Well, the MUEs, medically unlikely edits, said no, that stops at eight units. So you can imagine they kept trying to appeal it and spinning their wheels. And then fact four, when appealing an overpayment request, clarify what you're appealing. So if a payer indicates that you were overpaid and requests money back, you may not always agree and you have the right to appeal that. If you do pursue this route, make sure that you always include a copy of the overpayment letter with your overpayment appeal. If there are multiple claims included in the overpayment letter, make clear which claims you are appealing. So if you're appealing all of the claims of an overpayment letter, which is rare, say so in your request though, if that's the case. The appeals department must be able to identify all of the overpayments being appealed to stop collection activities on those receivables and hopefully you don't get offset checks. And then fact five, upcode requests should include documentation. So in some cases, you may believe you submitted the wrong code, and then in actuality, your records represented a higher level code than what you initially reported. I see that every once in a while with new coders. They bill, let's say, for a diagnostic arthroscopy when it should have been an arthroscopy with a surgical procedure. And so you're trying to say, oh, shoot, I need to go and get that. Or let's say you did a hernia repair and you billed for a hernia that was not strangulated or incarcerated. You billed for just a regular hernia repair, and those have different reimbursement um, situations. So in some cases, that would have been the wrong code, and you would need to submit documentation to support your claim. If you requested the appeals department to change a lower level code to a higher code, let's say it was ER, going from a 99283 to a 99284, you're going to have to attach medical records and make sure they're being sent to the right person because it's a reconsideration of a claim. Upcoding requests are handled as appeals, even when they're sent to Medicare to reopen the request form. They're subject to the appeals time limits and must be reviewed to determine if the higher level code is appropriate. In addition, don't forget to change the build amount on an upcode request. So they're not going to do it for you in the back end. If you're asking to change a HixPix code to one that has a higher dollar amount, don't forget to request that the build amount also changed because the appeals department will not uh, change the build amount unless specifically asked to. So that's really your responsibility. So hopefully those things and what we talked about from the telehealth regulatory will update you and give you some information there. And hopefully you're, you're kind of good to go with your process of your appeals and your collections. I love appeals. So you'll hear me talk about that every once in a while. And our coding question is brought to you today by Citibank Advantage Card. Go to Citibank.com to find the right card for you. Start earning miles, points, and benefits from Citibank AA Card today. So I'm going to end with my personal tidbit this week, kind of a fun one. So, you know, I'm a huge sports fan, but I'm also a huge golf fan, especially when Tiger Woods plays. My husband golfs and he's actually got a pretty good handicap going on. So he's now, now he, since he's retired, he's in a lot of tournaments now. Well, 14 months ago for Tiger Woods, he was in a car accident in California, almost ended his life and destroyed his leg. He didn't even show himself for eight months, but he's come back with a lot of 
just will to play, and he's going to play in the Masters Tournament this week. So I'm so excited to watch him. And let me just explain why I like Tiger. If you ever felt you needed a mirror for your work life to focus, you needed somebody that you could example from, that you could, not a mentor, but somebody that you could kind of mirror what you're doing. If you're struggling with that, Tiger would be it for me. He blocks out all of these surrounding noise and just focuses on what's in front of him. And that's been a struggle for me over the years because I'm pulled in so many directions with my consulting business. I mean, talk about moments of stray dog where I'm basically working on an audit and all of a sudden I think, oh shoot, I forgot I needed to write that article and then I'll stop that and go that, go to a different direction. And that's not always a good thing because you need to finish what's in front of you. But when you take the time to watch him play, if you get a chance, and I know golf can be a little like watching paint dry. I, I understand that. You can just see his wheels spinning and it just inspires you to focus or his, as Nike sponsor says, just do it. So I'm looking forward to the weekend of sports. I'm actually looking forward to seeing that mindset again because it inspires me to have the same mindset. So hopefully you have something coming up that you get inspiration from like I do. And uh, hopefully that'll also lead into the weekend for you as we are headed into full spring mode. So that's it for me this week. I know I went a little long this week, but hopefully um, you enjoyed that because I am, I've been going a little short. So this was a good, good segment this week. So make it a great day and I'll talk to you next week on the CodeCast podcast. For more information on medical coding, billing, auditing, and compliance, including how to hire Terry, follow Terry on Twitter at TerryCoder1 or visit her website at www.terryfletcher.net. Podcast producer, Joe Kuzma. Music producer, Assassin Music.